Chapter 3 of The Indian Today. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Darbandi. The Indian Today by Charles Alexander Eastman. Chapter 3 The Agency System its uses and abuses. The early colonists, accustomed to European usages, undertook to deal with a native chief as if he were a king, with the power to enforce his rule over his people. As a matter of fact, he was merely their spokesman, without authority except as it was given him by the council of his clan, which was called together in any important event. Each clan or band was responsible only for its own numbers, and had nothing to do with the conduct of any other band. This difference of viewpoint has led to serious trouble. Treaties and Trust Funds Most of the early agreements were merely de declarations of peace and friendship, allowing freedom of trade, but having nothing to do with any cession of land. In New England, small tracts of land were purchased by the settlers of individual Indians who happened to sojourn there for the time being and purchased for a nominal price, according to their own history and records. The natives had no conception of ownership in the soil, and would barter away a princely estate for a few strings of beads or a gallon of rum, not realizing that they conveyed the absolute and exclusive title that they themselves, as individuals, had not pretended to possess. The status of the Indians within the United States has been repeatedly changed since colonial times. When this government was founded, while claiming the right of eminent domain over the whole country, it never denied the, quote, right of occupancy, unquote, of the Aborigines. In the Articles of Confederation, Congress was given sole power to deal with them, but by the Constitution, this power was transferred in part to the executive branch. Formal treaties were made, which had to be ratified by the Senate, until in 1871 Congress declared that the Indian tribes might no longer be recognized as independent nations, and reduce the treaties to simple, quote, agreements, unquote, which, however, must in ethics be considered fully as binding. Their natural resources had now in many cases been taken from them, rendering them helpless and dependent, and for this reason some of the later treaties provided they should be supported until they became self-supporting. In less than a century, 370 distinct treaties were made with the various tribes, some of them merely friendship agreements, but in the main, providing for right-of-way and the cession of lands, as fast as such lands were demanded by the westward growth of the country and the pressure of population. In the first instance, the consideration was generally not over five or ten cents an acre. While the Indians were still nomadic in their habits, goods in payment were usually taken by steamboat to the nearest point and there turned over to the head chiefs, who distributed them among the people. Later the price increased and payments were made either in goods or cash, 50 cents to a dollar and a quarter, and more recently as much as $2.50 per acre for sessions of surplus lands on reservations after the owners have all been allotted. Gradually, large trust funds have been created for some of the tribes, the capital being held in the United States Treasury and the interest paid to the Indians in annual per capita installments, or expended, quote, for their benefit, unquote. Farmers, blacksmiths, carpenters, and other industrial teachers Cattle, farming tools, houses, and schools are variously promised in the later treaties for the, quote, support and civilization, unquote, of a people whose own method of making, 
a living has been rendered forever impossible. The theory was humane and just, but the working of the system has proved in a large degree a failure. What are reservations? A natural result of frequent land sessions was a reserving or settling aside of tracts of land for Indian occupancy known as, quote, reservations, unquote. Such lands have been set aside not only by treaty, but in many cases by act of Congress, and in others by executive order. The Indians living upon them may not sell standing timber or mining rights or right-of-way to railroads without the consent of the government. The policy of removal and concentration of Indians originated early in the 19th century and was carried partially into effect. Indian territory was set apart as a permanent home for the tribes, and the Creeks, Cherokees, Choctaws, Chickasaws, and Seminoles were removed thither from the southeastern states. After a terrible journey, in which many died of disease and exhaustion, and one boatload sank in the Mississippi River, those who were left established themselves in the, quote, promised land, unquote, a country rich in natural resources. They soon saw the necessity of a stable government and of domestic and agricultural pursuits. They copied the form of their government after that of the states, and the trust funds arising from the sale of their eastern lands formed the basis of their finances. They founded churches, schools, and orphan asylums, and upon the whole succeeded remarkably well in their undertaking, although their policy of admitting intermarried whites and Negroes to citizenship in the tribe led to much political corruption. Gradually some forty tribes, or tribal remnants, were colonized in the territory, but this scheme failed in many instances, as some tribes, such as the Sioux, refused absolutely to go there, and others who went suffered severely from the change of climate. In 1890, the western part was made into a separate territory under the name of Oklahoma and colonized by whites, and in 1907, the entire territory was admitted to statehood under that name, the, quote, five civilized nations, unquote, so-called, having been induced to give up their tribal governments. The Indians of the southwest came in, in 1848, under the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, although with some of them, other treaties have been made and their lands added to by executive order. The Navajos, about 22,000 in number, now own more than 12 million acres in Arizona and New Mexico. They are sheep herders and blanket weavers and entirely self-supporting. Owing to the character of the land they occupy and the absence of sufficient water for irrigation, there is not enough grass on the reservation to support all the Indian stock. Therefore, 5,000 or more Navajos are living outside the reservation, on the public domain, and of these, according to Indian office statements, about 1,000 are unallotted, and under the present law can only be allotted as are white homesteaders, by paying the costs of survey and fees to the land office. The Pueblos hold their lands, about 1 million acres, under Spanish grants, and are in absolute control of them, so that the government cannot build schoolhouses among them unless sites are needed for that purpose which they are sometimes unwilling to do. These people are still self-governing, but their titles are now in danger, owing to a recent ruling of the local courts that declares them citizens, and as such liable to taxation. Being for the most part very poor, and fearing to have their land sold for taxes, they have petitioned the United States to act as trustee to manage their estates. The natives of California were a peaceable people, and made scarcely any resistance to the invaders, a fact which has resulted in their rapid decline and extreme poverty. Under the Spanish friars, they were gathered into missions and given a general industrial training, but after the secularization of the missions, the Americans took possession of their cultivated lands, and many of the Indians were landless and homeless. The remnants are now living as squatters upon the property of white settlers, 
or on small pieces of land allotted them by the government. In striking contrast to the poverty-stricken condition of these Pacific Coast Indians is the wealth of the Osages, a small Siouan tribe occupying a fertile country in Oklahoma, who are said to be the richest people per capita in the world. Besides an abundance of land rich in oil and timber, they have a trust fund of $8 million in the United States Treasury, bringing in a large annual income. They own comfortable houses, dwell in substantial towns, and are moderately progressive. The Truth About Indian Agencies The Indian of the Northwest came into reservation life reluctantly, very much like a man who has dissipated his large inheritance and is driven out by foreclosure. One morning he awoke to the fact that he must give up his freedom and resign his vast possessions to live in a squalid cabin in the backyard of civilization. For the first time his rovings were checked by well-defined boundaries and he could not hunt or visit neighboring tribes without a passport. He was practically a prisoner, to be fed and treated as such, and what resources were left him must be controlled by the Indian Bureau through its resident agent. Who is this Indian agent, or superintendent, as he is now called? He is the supreme ruler on the reservation, responsible directly to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, and all requests or complaints must pass through his office. The agency doctor, clerks, farmers, superintendents of agency schools, and all the local employees report to him and are subject to his orders. Too often he has been nothing more than a ward politician of the commonest stamp, whose main purpose is to get all that is coming to him. His salary is small, but there are endless opportunities for graft. If any appeal from the agent's decisions, they are, quote, kickers, unquote, and, quote, insubordinate, unquote. If they are Indians, he can easily deprive them of privileges or even imprison them on trumped-up charges. If employees, he will force them to resign or apply for transfers, and even the missionaries may be compelled, directly or indirectly, to leave the reservation for protesting too openly against official wrongdoing. The inspector sent from Washington to investigate finds it easy to, quote, get in with, unquote, the agent, and very difficult to see or hear anything that the agent does not wish him to hear or see. Many Indians now believe sincerely in Christ's teachings as explained to them by their missionaries, but they find it impossible to believe that this government is Christian, or the average official an honest man. Any untutored people, however, are apt imitators, and so these much-exploited natives became politicians in spite of themselves. The most worthless of the tribe are used as the agent's spies and henchmen, a state of affairs demoralizing on the face of it. As long as the Indian Bureau is run in the interests of the politicians, and Indian civilization is merely an incident, the excellent and humanitarian policies approved by the American people will not be fully carried into effect. It is true that good men, and especially good women, have gone into the Indian service with a genuine desire to deal justly and kindly by the Indian, and to serve the government honorably and efficiently. Such people often become disgusted with the system, and find it impossible to stay, or else are forced out by methods familiar to the experienced. When you clear your American cities of grafters and purify your politics, then perhaps you will be in a position to redeem the Indian service, and only then. Alas! The skirts of the goddess of liberty have never yet been quite clean. The Indian is no fool. On the other hand, he is a keen observer and an apt student. Although an idealist by nature, many of the race have proved themselves good businessmen. But under the reservation system, they have developed traits that are absolutely opposed to the racial type. They become time-serving, beggarly, and apathetic. Some of their finest characters, such as Chief Joseph, 
have really died of a broken heart. These are men who could not submit to be degraded. The politicians call them incorrigible savages. The distribution of rations to the Plains Indians was, as I have explained, originally a peace measure, and apparently a necessity in place of their buffalo, which the white man had exterminated. For many years, Texas beef was issued monthly on the hoof. That is, the cattle were driven out one by one upon the plain, and there surrounded and shot down by representatives of the groups to which they belonged. Bacon, flour, sugar, and coffee were doled out to the women, usually as often as once in two weeks, thus requiring those who lived at a considerable distance from the agency to spend several days of each month on the road neglecting their homes and gardens if they had any. Once a year, there was a distribution of cheap blankets and shoddy clothing. The self-respect of the people was almost fatally injured by these methods. This demoralizing ration-giving has been gradually done away with, as the Indians progress towards self-support, but it is still found necessary in many cases. Not all features of reservation life are bad, for while many good things are shut out and some evils flourish, others are excluded. Liquor traffic among Indians has been forbidden by law since the colonial period, and the law is fairly well enforced by a number of special officers, yet in a few tribes there has been in recent years much demoralization through liquor. It is generally admitted that there is less crime and rowdyism on the reservations than in civilized communities of equal size. In 1878, a force of native police was authorized to keep order, eject intruders, act as truant officers, and perform other duties under the direction of the agent. Though paid only 10 or $12 a month, these men have been faithful and efficient in the performance of duties involving considerable hardship and sometimes danger. Their loyalty and patriotism are deserving of special praise. In making arrests and bringing in desperate prisoners, as in the case of Pretty Elk the Brule Sioux murderer and of the chief Sitting Bull, the faithful police have sometimes lost their lives. Indian Claims It is commonly admitted that the Indian treaties have been frequently broken by the United States both in the letter and the spirit, while on the other hand, the Indians have acted in good faith and with a high regard for their national honor. It is also a fact not very creditable to the government that treaties have been materially amended in the Senate and not again submitted to the tribe, who were not even made aware at once of their altered provisions. I believe this would be considered a piece of sharp practice in the case of any people able to defend itself. The breach of treaty obligations on the part of this government has led to a large number of Indian claims involving millions of dollars, which represent the efforts of tribes or bands which feel themselves wronged or defrauded to obtain justice under the white man's law. The history of one or two of such may be of interest. Most of the Anita and Stockbridge tribes exchanged their New York reservations for a large tract of land in Kansas and started for their new home in 1830, but never got any farther than Green Bay, Wisconsin. There, the Menominees invited them to remain and share their reservation, as they had plenty of good land. The Stockbridges had originally occupied the beautiful Housatonic Valley, where Jonathan Edwards preached to them and made them good Presbyterians. Nevertheless, the, quote, Christian, unquote, colonists robbed them of their homes and drove them westward. They did not resist the aggression. If anything is proved in history, it is that those who follow in the footsteps of the meek and gentle Jesus will be treated unmercifully, as he was, by a hard and material world. These stockbridges went still further with their kind hosts, and ultimately both tribes accepted the hospitality of the Ojibwes. They made their unfortunate brothers welcome, and made them a free gift of land. But now observe the white man's sense of honor and justice in glaring contrast. For 75 years, the United States government failed to recompense these people for their Kansas land, which they never reached, 
and which in the meantime was taken up by settlers and gradually covered with thriving homes and fertile farms. The whole case was scrutinized again and again by the Congress of the United States from 1830 to about 1905, when at last a payment was made. The fact that the two tribes remained in Wisconsin and settled there does not invalidate their claim, as those wild Ojibways had no treaty with the government at that time and had a perfect right to give away some of their land. It was a barefaced, open steal from the Indians, yet the tribes were obliged to employ white attorneys at a liberal percent of the amount they hoped to recover. They had to pay high for simple justice. Meanwhile, they lived on their own labor for two or three generations and contributed to the upbuilding of Wisconsin. Today, some of them are doing better than their white neighbors. This is only one illustration of a not uncommon happening, for while some of these claims are doubtless unreasonable, I personally know of many in which the ethics of the case are as clear as in this which I have cited. It is often the fact that differences among attorneys and party politics in Congress delay justice for many years or deprive the Indians of their rights altogether. A bill has recently been introduced at the instance of the Society of American Indians, which is framed to permit Indian tribes to sue in the Court of Claims without first obtaining the consent of Congress in each case. This bill ought to be at once made law, as it would do away within a few years with many long-drawn-out disputes and much waste and worse than waste of time and money. End of chapter 3. Recording by Dan Darbandy.